Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Today's guest is Dr. Keisha Ann Blaine, who is an award-winning historian who teaches at the University of Pittsburgh and is president of the African-American Intellectual History Society. Uh, she is currently the 2020 2021 Fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University, and she's the author of numerous books, including Set the World on Fire, Black Nationalist Women, and the Global Struggle for Freedom. Dr. Keisha N. Blaine. Keisha, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because I taught Set the World on Fire uh, in my African-American Intellectual History Seminar this semester, and we did it over two weeks. And I think this book is so timely for this year of racial and political reckoning where so many Black women um, who've always been leaders but have mm -hmm. come to the fore in a big ways, in a big way with the, with the BLM movement. So I want to talk about these Black nationalist women who you call proto-feminists. You know, you look at mm -hmm. Amy Ashwood, um, you look at uh, uh, Laura Adorkey, you look at all these different nationalist and Pan-Africanist Black women um, and what they had to face in this sort of patriarchal, sexist, racist uh, America and international mm -hmm. political arena, but how they helped to shape that political arena, uh, defying all kinds of odds. So I want to talk about some of the Black women here and what, first of all, got you interested in these women? Well, first, thanks for assigning the book. Uh, that's always exciting to hear. I actually came to this topic as an undergrad, uh, you know, as an undergrad student, I attended Binghamton University and I was taking a class at the time on global black social movements with Michael West, who I think many of the listeners would recognize uh, because he has edited uh, an amazing collection on black internationalism from Tucson to Tupac. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was taking this course with Professor West and so captivated by the stories, so captivated by the histories that we were centering in the class. But it became very clear to me that women, women certainly showed up uh, in the readings and we certainly spoke about certain women, but it wasn't clear to me how women were actually shaping uh, internationalist politics. Uh, it was unclear to me uh, beyond just their roles, uh, the way that many of the authors would write about these women, it would be all about, um, you know, framing them as partners, you know, maybe someone involved in the movement, but not necessarily centering them as leaders um, or as theorists. And, and I think it was, uh, for me, uh, a glaring oversight in the scholarship in general. And it led me to, to, to ask a series of questions about Black women's roles within Black internationalist movements, particularly in the 20th century. And West encouraged me to write a paper, you know, to write a term paper on on black women uh, in the Garvey movement of the 1920s. And that's what I did. I wrote this paper and that paper blossomed into an honors thesis. I ended up then uh, going to grad school and uh, writing a dissertation, initially not planning to work on um, black nationalist women, but I was so captivated by the topic that I found myself coming back to the topic and writing the dissertation on which set the world on fire is based. So it all started uh, in a class on global black social movements. Now, I, I really enjoy your discussion. I want to start with uh, the Garvey movement and 
mm-hmm. looking at both Amy Ashwood and Amy Jacques Garvey, the first two wives of Marcus Garvey, but you really look at them as political activists really throughout the book in their own right. Tell us about Amy Ashwood and Amy Jacques Garvey and what they um, what they mean when we look at Garveyism and when we look at the early 20th century Pan-Africanist movements and these Black movements for political self-determination when we look at Black women as leaders and from their point of view mm-hmm. uh, during this period. Well, I'll start with Amy Ashwood because I think it's so important to recognize her as a co-founder of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Uh, and this is something that I discuss in the early, in the first chapter of the book, uh, and tried to spend a bit of time with that because uh, it's one thing to say that she contributed to the movement, and it's one thing to even acknowledge um, the fact that she was, you know, present at the very beginning. But I think it's important to uh, to recognize that she truly was um, a co-founder, and it's and it's not an exaggeration when you think about how. Um, Marcus Garvey relied upon uh, just even the financial support of Ashwood's parents, for example, uh, how Ashwood's, um, you know, the home of uh, Ashwood's parents ultimately became a space for the UNIA uh, to to have meetings. Uh, and also when you look at the Constitution, you look at these early founding documents of the UNIA, and it's evident how Amy Ashwood certainly helped to shape the organization from its beginning uh, and how she tried to uh, find ways to include women, even though, as I argue in the book, it's still, you know, a patriarchal organization, but it provides a critical space for Black women to engage in political activity, uh, particularly at a moment where, uh, as we know, uh, Black women and, and Black people in general were um, shut out of the formal political process uh, via the vote. Uh, and so Amy Ashwood is, is really important in thinking about the, the Garvey movement from its beginning. And then to talk about Amy Jacques Garvey, this is important too, because here, you know, so one woman um, we can describe as a co-founder and, and the other uh, as co-creator of Garveyism. And, and here I'm thinking about uh, just the critical role that Amy Jacques Garvey played in helping Marcus Garvey, you know, even simple task as helping him write his speeches, but even far more than that, she was someone who took a hold um, of his legacy and, and worked to make sure that people would understand Garvey's ideas, uh, that people would would ultimately never forget um, these important ideas. And she helped to sustain, um, you know, Garveyism long after Garvey had passed away. So, so these two women were uh, fundamental to the Garvey movement and to Black nationalist politics in general. Tell us about uh, Mitty, Maud, Lena Gordon, and the peace movement of Ethiopia and why that was so, so important. And I thought it was very interesting uh, to look at the PME um, and this idea of um, Ethiopia uh, and emigration. And you also look at the Moorish Science Temple mm-hmm. uh, and the connections there. I thought it was really, really fascinating uh, throughout because it's such a side of the story um, that usually is not told. And you tell it from a different angle than scholars like Eric McDuffie and other mm-hmm. people who've looked at Black women who are part of the left, the broader left right. uh, Communist Party in that in that way. So tell us about... Uh, Midi, Maud, Lena, Gordon, 
obviously Celia Jane Allen, these these Black women who did these extraordinary things. And you make a great case that they're part of the organizing tradition yes. that Charles Payne and other people have talked about, which I, you know, I, I, I love to, to, to read about and I thought was so yes. apt. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, Mitty Maudlina Gordon, I think, is, you know, the person uh, I would credit as ultimately setting me on this path to to write this book, because I was not aware um, of her initially. I certainly had not even heard of her. I had not encountered the peace movement of Ethiopia at all in the scholarship. And, and there were... Um, references in, in various books and articles, which I then found after the fact, but I had not encountered uh, any of these names while I was studying uh, Black nationalism and, and certainly uh, the Garvey movement. But finding uh, Mitty Maudlina Gordon was transformative because I had, like so many other scholars, had been making a case that ultimately the Garvey movement, you know, I, I I certainly used to say that, oh, the Garvey, move, Garvey movement died somewhere around, you know, 1927 uh, with Garvey's legal troubles and, and with, with his arrest uh, and imprisonment and then ultimately with his deportation, then the Garvey movement died. Uh, and if you think about it through the, through the lens of Black nationalism broadly, I was certainly one of those people who would have made the case that you know, black nationalism had its sort of um, golden age in the earlier period and then dies off in, in the 30s, 40s, uh, and then has experiences some sort of resurgence, you know, in the 1950s and, and 60s onward. Uh, but finding Mitty Madlina Gordon in the archives uh, was an important moment because here was an example of a woman who was involved in the Garvey movement in the 1920s who decided to establish her own Black nationalist organization, which she did in December 1932. And the Peace Movement of Ethiopia uh, is truly a fascinating uh, organization to study uh, because it is both nationalist in, in its framing, emphasizing political self-determination, emphasizing you know, African heritage and um, you know, uh, self-sufficiency, all of these core ideas that we ascribe to Black nationalism. But it was also a black internationalist organization in that they were also they were thinking about how to make connections to other people, you know, other groups of, of color, particularly connections to uh, Japanese people um, that I talk about in the book. Uh, and, and of course, connections to activists uh, on, you know, on the African continent. So the peace movement of Ethiopia attracted thousands uh, thousands of, of Black uh, people, certainly in Chicago, of course, but across the Midwest and, and across the country. As I explained in the book, the organization had more than a dozen chapters. Uh, and Celia Jane Allen is one of the women who whose life um, was transformed by having an encounter with Gordon and, and joining the Peace Movement of Ethiopia. And she becomes uh, an organizer who travels to um, Mississippi uh, and, and throughout various parts of the South uh, to help to build the organization. Uh, and, and just those two quick uh, examples underscore the, the critical role that women played in sustaining Black nationalist politics uh, and keeping Black nationalist ideas alive uh, in, in public discourse, making it possible right, to have uh, a, really a robust, uh, you know, black power movement, as as you so eloquently write about in your own work. And so I think uh, this this was a missing chapter, to be sure. And it was the kind of narrative 
that that I needed to tell to help people see how clearly Black women have shaped uh, both nationalist and internationalist movements uh, and discourses in the 20th century. Now, I was really struck in the chapter Dreaming of Liberia about these Black women in it, at times negotiating and trying to get support from Theodore Bilbo, the, mm-hmm. the segregationist senator. And I think you do that really well to show us how uh, what their motivations were, that we can be critical of it, but what their motivations were. And certainly there's this longer history of uh, Black activists at times trying to negotiate with white supremacists, whether it's Garvey or Malcolm X in the nation. Right. Um, but I had never seen until reading this, um, you know, Black women front and center. Right. Uh, can you tell us about that, the negotiations uh, for Liberian immigration? And what are your thoughts about it in terms of you do a good job of not trying to just judge them, but we also know what, you know, the morality of, of, right. of doing that sort of one rule of thumb probably should be never negotiate with white supremacists, <laughs> yes, you know, because yes. um, you're I not going to really win. Uh, so tell us about that. I thought that was very, right. very, just, just uh, very interesting. Well, I'll admit that that chapter was the most difficult chapter, I think, um, to write. And I, I struggled with this partly because I was just frustrated <laughs> with with the story and frustrated with the history. Uh, I did not expect to find this much collaboration. As you noted, it's not new. I was aware, you know, certainly studying, studying Garveyism about the kinds of collaborations with Marcus Garvey and, and several um, white supremacists. And, and, and we see all of these examples throughout history, but it was something to, to see black women pursuing these collaborations and also to grapple with, you know, the, the racial, but also the, the gender dynamics of these relationships too. Um, I ultimately came to the, you know, I, I ultimately came to the place where I said, okay, I may not like this history or this aspect of the history, but it is there. And I, and I wanted to present, you know, a thorough and honest assessment of the movement as much as possible. So I decided, you know, I have to take this on um, completely. I have to grapple with it. Uh, readers would expect me to, to do so. And 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 part of uh, talking about these collaborations was figuring out two things. One, you know, did these women actually think that the strategy made sense? Uh, you know, did they actually think it could work? Did they see it as an effective strategy, uh, and, and two, to like to what extent, what you know, were their collaborations um, performative? You know, to what extent were these women uh, putting on a show? Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I had to figure out these kinds of nuances, and it's and it was difficult to come to those um, answers. But thankfully, I was able to come to those answers, uh, finding several clues in the archives, and one clue in particular, which I think was probably the most a revealing aspect of doing this research on this particular, uh, you know, um, story was finding Mitty Modlina Gordon's exchange with one of the activists in the movement in which uh, he was writing to her and criticizing her saying, you know, why in the world are you collaborating with white supremacists? Uh, this, is, this doesn't make sense. This goes against everything that we stand for. And she says to him, listen, this is, this is ultimately strategy. Um, and she says, we need to be willing to try anything, uh, to try any and everything 
that will help us accomplish our goals. And here's where I, I, I decided, you know, to focus specifically on this idea of, of pragmatism, right? And, and that in and of itself means various things, but, but fundamentally for these women, it was about being willing to forge collaborations um, with people who you don't necessarily agree with, or even people who you agree with on certain issues, but they have a different you know, perspective, as is the case with uh, immigration. So Black nationalist women wanted you know, to leave the United States, and white supremacists wanted them to leave the United States, even though they both had different uh, you know, motivations for wanting uh, immigration. Uh, and so Mitty Marlena Gordon's explanation uh, you know, to this activist was a useful one because it helped me see that truly these women were thinking it through carefully. Um, and, and part of what I wanted to do in this book was not only capture their story as activists, I think you know that's important and we, we always do this, but really to capture their stories as, as intellectuals, you know, as theorists, as people who are strategists too, who are not only just doing things because, you know, are part of movements, but but really trying to figure out how to navigate a very difficult period. And of course, you know, I, I don't agree with those collaborations and I, I still find those collaborations frustrating and I'm not even sure I fully um, accept the, you know, the answer, uh, but at least I knew that there was an answer and, and I was able to present it in the book. Now, when we get to the 1950s and 60s, you follow um, Amy Ashwood, you follow Amy Jacques Garvey, you follow them and what sort of happens, including to uh, Mitty, uh, Lena, Maude Gordon, um, mm-hmm. what happens to them. So uh, one, when you think about these Black women in the context of the Black power movement and the anti-colonial struggles of the 1950s and 60s, you show how as they continue to, to evolve uh even though they've been proto-feminist and resisting uh, patriarchy, mm-hmm. uh, so they still downplay their own achievements. And they still yeah. think, and I thought this was uh, remarkable because I remember the controversy over the Million Man March, and we still have some of these mm-hmm. controversies today, which we're going to talk about. But this idea of defining Black liberation within the context of still some kind of patriarchal struggle. Right. Yeah. Uh, some kind of patriarchal assertion or reassertion that parallels white or Eurocentric uh, patriarchy. So can we discuss that in the sense of how some of these women, I thought they're so smart. They're intellectuals. You absolutely prove definitively they're theorists. And why do you think they some of them still were downplaying mm-hmm. uh, just their um, innovation and their creation, their own genius um, and still sort of sort of uh, beholden to this idea of, of, you know, this, this kind of patriarchy? Well, one of the things that I, I find, um, which is true of, of this period, but even much earlier, and I think one could argue that it's probably a tension that simply runs throughout all of Black history when we think about Black women uh, and the way that they are, are, are struggling to, on the one hand, uh, support black men, uh, help advance the race broadly, and oftentimes the way that they conceptualize advancing the race is very much, you know, the notion of helping black men, and at the same time trying to make sure that they are not pushed to the wayside, you know, that 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 they're not uh, excluded from these movements. It's a delicate balance, uh, and it 
it's sometimes, you know, it, it works and sometimes it doesn't, which is to say that, you know, many of these women uh, in the movement, uh, including Minnie Madeleine Gordon, including Celia Jane Allen, they were committed to leading, but at the same time, never wanted their leadership to get in the way of Black men's leadership. And it often felt like a tug of war, I think, ideologically. And this is partly why I talk about these women as proto-feminists, because it's not the kind of feminist politics that you see if you're studying, you know, Black women on the communist left, you know, and those women, I, I think, um, are clearly a lot more progressive in, in their thinking if you compare it to someone like Claudia Jones, for example. Uh, but the women who I write about are constantly fighting uh, internally uh, and you see that in the archives too. So even though, so though Midi Maduna Gordon, for example, establishes the organization, she's the one who has the idea, she's the one who calls the meeting, she's the one who brings people together, she's the one who drafts the constitution and all of these things. And yet in her own writing, she says, the only reason why I did all of these things is because I couldn't find a strong man to do it. And of course, that makes absolutely no sense because in that initial meeting, it's mostly men present, uh, including her husband, who's involved in the movement. So it's obvious that it's not a matter of not, you know, not having a strong man available, but it's almost as if she needed to say say that to explain, to justify somehow why in the world she's you know taking on this this leadership role. And similarly, Celia Jane Allen does the same thing in the South. She's the one leading the movement. She's coming up with, with all these ideas. She's creating all of these chapters. Yet she's often doing this work through, you know, going through and connecting to uh, to black ministers and, and trying to push them to the front and say, you, you know, you go for it and do the work uh, while she's behind telling them what to do. And so I just think it has a lot to do with attention, um, you know, among many of these activists who don't want to do anything that would harm, um, you know, that would make it difficult for black men to to advance in society because they understand how the larger, you know, mainstream white society, how how they're mistreating black men and 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 black men are not receiving their fair due and black men are not being treated with respect or even viewed as men um, in the 20th century, you know, sort of framework. And and so I think part of the tension has a lot to do with these women trying to negotiate what is clearly a very uh, difficult kind of, um, you know, space to navigate. Now, that's a great transition for the contemporary. And I want to talk to you about uh, Black Lives Matter, um, Black women's leadership, Black feminism, Black queer feminism. Uh, you have a new book coming out on Fannie Lou Hamer next year uh, that really delves into her voting rights, her intellectual and theoretical contributions, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer's message to America, message to the world. Um, when you think about this BLM moment, this year of protest and pandemic and plague, uh, I think it's been very striking how um, Black women have been at the forefront of this. And certainly it's a long time uh, coming. And we know those of us who've been in the space of, of studying Black feminism and Black women's history, there's a long, long history that goes back to the 18th and 19th century. Uh, and in the 20th century, um, you know, people like Fannie Lou Hamers and Lorraine Hansberry and mm -hmm. uh, so many others who you talk about and Dale Gore and Eric McDuffie yeah. and, um, you know, Barbara Ransby on Ella Baker talk about. Um, one, I, I, want to, I want you to situate what is so special about this historic um, period, 
when we when we think about how just symbolically we're seeing the Tamika Mallory's, we're seeing the Patrice mm-hmm. Colors, Alicia Garza's, we're really seeing it's not cisgender black men right, right. up front. When you think right. about Time Magazine, when you think about uh, British Vogue, Vanity Fair has Breonna Taylor on the cover, but also so many black women thinkers, theorists, activists, professors like yourself um, are, are receiving mm-hmm. so much um, attention. I, I want you to 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 say what do you what do you what do you think this means for that project of of black feminism, for intersectionality, for for black liberation? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's certainly an exciting moment, you know, especially as you brought up the uprisings uh, earlier this this year, this this summer, this spring. And I remember seeing the video with, you know, Tamika Mallory just addressing a crowd of protesters and thinking immediately of Midi Madlina Gordon and and a scene that I describe in, in Set the World on Fire in which she's standing and, and addressing a group of um reporters too, as she's standing on the Capitol building. Uh, A lot has changed, right, since uh, the 1930s. And one of the things that I think is great to see uh, is the way that that Black women are certainly being recognized, uh, and and I would hope um, respected in these movements. And, you know, certainly the, the fact that we even had uprisings this past uh, few months is only possible because of the remarkable work of, um, you know, the BLM organizers and uh, founders in particular. And these women, I think, are certainly standing on the shoulders of all of these women um, who we've been talking about in this segment, uh, especially someone like like Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, who was also out there, uh, you know, talking about police violence and brutality, addressing uh, inequality, anti-Black racism, but not always uh, fully uh, accepted and not always uh, even acknowledged uh, in the movement, sometimes uh, dismissed by other leaders. You know, one of the things that I will say is that I, I, there's a difference between sort of the, the outward facing aspect of these movements and the internal dynamics of these movements. Uh, there is still, I think, uh, evidence of, of patriarchy. I think there's still evidence uh, internally um, of people potentially, you know, sidelining um, women or, or trying to. But but what is clear today is that uh, it's it's not as easy to do that today, you know, as it might have been uh, in the 1960s. You know, the way that women at the March on Washington, for example, were were sidelined, even though they were doing all of the work and uh, the way that they were not given the mic and, and mm-hmm. not given a central, a central, you know, central space today, it's very different today. I think black women aren't even waiting for anyone to, <laughs> to give them the mic. Uh, you know, they're, they're taking the mic and, and demanding that their voices are heard uh, and just operating on their own terms. And I think that is powerful. And, and clearly that is also within the context of thinking about, um, women liberation movement, you know, the women's liberation movement, thinking about uh, feminist politics broadly, uh, you know, the 1930s, the women of the 1930s I talk about as proto-feminists uh, because they had not fully, I don't think, fully embraced, you know, what we understand as feminist politics today. Uh, but, you know, the, the activists of this current moment are truly, uh, not all, but but many openly embrace uh, feminism and 
and they're just not interested in in this idea of of being sidelined, uh, you know, on account of their gender, or, you know, or sexuality or class. I just think one of the most powerful things about the BLM movement is is how it it, it truly I think represents, you know, that group centered um, leadership model that Ella Baker um, emphasized in, in founding uh, in in helping to to found the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, as well as you know. Uh, someone like Fannie Lou Hamer, who I think also uh, embrace that vision as well. Now, when you think about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and its ability to talk about intersectional justice and lead us towards um, this this post-patriarchal conception of Black liberation, uh, what do you think about the role of Black men, especially um, cisgender Black men, Mm -hmm. in the context of what we've seen with the controversy over Ice Cube and... um, the contract uh, for Black America and sort of um, negotiations in this sense with white supremacists <laughs> with the Trump administration. Right. But also we've seen that the data is telling us anywhere from 12, 14 to 18 percent of Black men are uh, showing um, support for the for the president, uh, President Trump. Um, that is ob- obviously a plurality. So most Black mm-hmm. men are not interested in a president who is anti-black women and anti-black people, but that's still a distressing. It's a disappointing number when when you think about. Uh, uh, conversely, black women show very very small sig- single digit support for for right. for, for Trump. Uh, I, I want us to talk about that because I think feminism, black feminism, uh, in the context of the 21st century, is both flowering. Uh, and being amplified in very, very important ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, there's all these contradictions in terms of uh, some Black men uh, feeling uh, left behind because they don't have a conception of masculinity and identity where they can follow as well as lead. But then there's also some Black women who will say they don't identify as feminist, right? Who who say, uh, and I remember this controversy during the Million Man March too, who was saying, Angela Davis and others criticized the Million Man March as patriarchal, but mm-hmm. there were many Black women who are in the in the beauty shops. You know what Melissa Harris Perry has written about, and others, the beauty shops, just like there's the barber shops, who are the quotidian, the everyday Black women. Everyday Patricia, Patricia Hill Collins talks about our everyday standpoint of Black women as well, who are kind of more convergent with the Black women you talk about and set the world on fire, where they want liberation, but they still think of it within these frameworks that are patriarchal, even as they don't want to be somehow traumatized emotionally or physically in relationships or dealings with Black men, but they still think about this idea of, of, of these patriarchal structures. So I want us to talk about that and sort of this kind of debate that's kind of happening internally within the within our community? Well, you know, one of the things that I always emphasize um, is the fact that we have to acknowledge that we live in a patriarchal society. And, and I say that because uh, this, is, this is key uh, and, and it actually explains a lot of the way that people um, even, you know, approach, uh, well, politics, even when it comes to, to voting uh, and to your, to your earlier question about why there's even any kind of uh, what seems to be a growing support for Trump among a segment of black men. One of the reasons why it's so hard to dismantle you know, systems of oppression broadly uh, is because 
there are people who certainly actively oppress others. And then there are individuals who don't necessarily do anything, but they benefit from the oppression of others. Mm-hmm. And because they benefit, uh, they they just let it, you know, they let it slide. Uh, and, and there are individuals who, who are, are actually invested, right, in upholding patriarchy because it works for them. You know, if, if, if you believe that a particular system uh, is oppressive to others, but in the end, it benefits you, it, it allows you to have a range of opportunities, it allows you to have access in certain spaces, you know, it takes a lot to fight that system. So you may, you may in fact, just uh, fall into it. And so when you, when you talk about someone like Ice Cube, or even I think about 50 Cent, you know, and, and all of this talk about uh, supporting Trump, well, let's get to the heart of the matter. Many of these individuals are willing to uh, support, uh, you know, an individual who who they feel will ultimately uh, push policies that will keep money uh, in their pockets, right? So it's a selfish kind of response, but it's a similar a concept to, you know, it's a similar response when we talk about patriarchy is that there are people uh, who are invested. And I say people because it's not just men, right? Um, so there will certainly be men who will, who will not have a problem with, with patriarchy, clearly. Uh, but there will be others, too, uh, who, who are okay with, with, with this, you know, system um, in place because, you know, there are other benefits and, and quote-unquote protections for them as well. And I think about the work of Eula Taylor, you know, in terms of looking at women in the nation of Islam, and that becomes just one example of how people, um, how certain groups, you know, including women can buy into patriarchal ideas uh, and accept them uh, because it works for them. And it doesn't, you know, why challenge something if, if you feel like it, it actually ultimately helps you, you know, helps put food on the table, uh, literally, maybe that's, maybe that's your thinking. Uh, and, uh, why then stand in the way of that? So, so it is a, a complex discussion and has a lot to do, I think, with, um, with with various factors, which is why ultimately intersectionality is is so powerful. Because as much as we we can talk about racism, like we have to also talk about sexism and then classism, you know, and just a range of different ways that that individual lives um, are, are shaped. Um, and how these varied identities ultimately inform how people live out their lives, but but also how they how they navigate, how they think through these kinds of decisions. And I think all of that comes to the surface in this discussion about the current elections. You know, because Keisha, you have um, so much exciting work that you've done on Black women and the power of the vote, and you have a, a blockbuster book coming out in 2021 on Fannie Lou Hamer. I want to talk about the Ayanna Presleys and the Corey Bushes and the Black women who who mm-hmm. are up next, uh, some who might even become president, Kamala Harris, vice president, uh, mm-hmm. vice presidential nominee. What's going on um, when I think about these Black women who are not only organizing the vote, but stepping up to be elected officials at every single level? Stacey Abrams. Um, um, t- tell, let's talk about their connection to the Fannie Lou Hamers, but what do you think, how does that connect with the politics of just 
ordinary Black working class women too, who, like you said earlier, in previous generations were fine with sort of being beyond um, behind the scenes. But mm-hmm. now we have Black women who are um, very out front and center being the architects of a new mm-hmm. radical democracy in ways that, yes, we've had Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer, but like you said, mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily projected to the center. You know, uh, right. in- inevitably, some straight Black man <laughs> bum-rushed the mic <laughs> and, and yeah. it was right there for the photo op. But now, like I said, right. Ayanna Presley, who I know, Corey Bush in Missouri, mm-hmm. there's just so many women of color, but I want to talk about Black women who are really doing remarkable, remarkable things right now. Yes, so many. And, and you know, I was thinking um, about Stacey Abrams recently, too, because in so many other, you know, there are so many other ways she could have uh, responded, you know, to her own experiences, you know, just experiencing a devastating loss and knowing that your loss is very much tied um, to a practice of voter suppression. Um, there are people, I think, who could have been devastated by the experience and just quietly, you know, gone away and, and said nothing. But what she did was something that um, really reminds me of, of Fannie Lou Hamer and, and other courageous Black women to take a painful experience uh, and to ultimately move and move forward and to push forward to to turn it around, you know, and, and for Abrams uh, to just have an organization that now plays a central role uh, in educating voters um, about the tactics of voter suppression in this country and, and encouraging people to participate in, in elections. I think uh, this is just one of the many ways that we see Black women uh, in this particular moment deciding that one, and I, and I alluded to this before, I said, you know, not waiting for someone to hand you the mic, uh, but, but grabbing the mic. And um, and it's an analogy, but it's but it's a powerful one. It's to say, you know, we're not waiting. We're not waiting for for some man. We're not waiting for any, anyone to come and say, OK, fine, we'll open the door for you. We're, we're going to break down those doors um, because it's time for black women, you know, to, to have a say and. And and so even someone like Latasha Brown and the remarkable work that she's been doing with you know Black Voters Matter Fund, uh, all within the spirit I think of, of Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, recognizing what the problems are, clearly you know not oblivious to the challenges that we're facing, but coming up with a practical you know solution and a practical way to help the community as a whole, uh, specifically when it comes to to voting rights and 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 so these women I think give us so much hope for for the future and it's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book on Fannie Lou Hamer because you know I just saw Fannie Lou Hamer's legacy in all of these uh, experiences all of these women's um, political activism and and I just think it's so important for Americans really for for everyone uh, committed to social justice. To, to, to really take a hold of Fannie Lou Hamer's vision um, and, and to see like how, um, how powerful her ideas were and continue to be. Now, your own work uh, has been widely, widely published. Um, you're, uh, you edit the Made by History section of the Washington Post. Um, 
and just been published, uh, been publishing very, very prolifically. For younger scholars and even students and young people who are activists, young Black uh, women and and men, boys and girls, uh, what's your advice to them in terms of um, you 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 have a uh, you're a scholar, but you have so much of a public facing uh, perspective uh, mm-hmm. on history and the way in which history impacts people's lives, policy, feminism, history, voting rights. What is your mm-hmm. advice to them in terms of certainly you've been saying, you know, don't wait for anyone, just grab the mic. But what can they do? Because I think there's a lot of young people who are looking at somebody like you, your example. You, you've accomplished so much as a young at a young at a relatively young age, mm-hmm. and who are really inspired by that. What what can you? But who aren't necessarily? You've got a stellar career. Um, not everybody gets a chance to go to Princeton. I know as a as a state university and Temple University graduate, proudly, um, not everybody's going to get those um, opportunities. But what can they do if they want to be a Keisha Blaine and 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 have that kind of voice and that profile and that impact? You know, you really do have to follow your passions. And I say that over and over again. You know, when I was writing my dissertation, I had so many people just say to me directly, some spoke to me directly, others spoke behind my back, but ultimately made it, you know, made its way to me who didn't see much value uh, in the project. There are several different initiatives that I've been involved in where I've had people, even including people who I adore and respect say to me, you know, this is not going to help your career. No, it's not a good idea to blog. No, it's not a good idea to do the Charleston syllabus. Uh, no, it's not a good idea to edit some volume. Uh, and, and I try to to take advice. I'm certainly not the person, you know, who pushes away advice. I actually ask for advice a lot. But But one of the things that I did was say, you know, if I feel that I'm compelled to do something and and I must do it, then I will do it. And that's how I felt about the Charleston syllabus when a lot of people said this was not a good idea. You know, you're young in your career. You don't have tenure. You really don't need to be focusing on collaborative projects. But I felt like it was important to lend my expertise at that moment. And and I didn't even worry or care about whether it would help me get tenure or not. Um, ultimately, I did it because it was important to do it. And And similarly, with a lot of decisions that I've made, uh, and I've made, you know, some some decisions that I think a lot of people saw as risky, and I still make risky decisions. Um, I, I think I'm certainly wiser now, you know, than I than I used to be. So I'm <laughs> growing and learning. Uh, but but ultimately, I just think it's it's important to uh, follow your passions because the same dissertation project that that many people looked at me and said, yeah, I don't even see the significance of that. In fact, I had an editor say that to me. I had an editor after sending my manuscript. Uh, he said, this is all very intriguing, but I just don't see the point. I don't see the significance of this uh-huh. project. You know, he well, he ate his words, right? I mean, you know, years later, but that was that was painful to hear. And it was it was a blow. Um, but I just had to say, OK, next editor, you know, keep it keep it moving. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so I hope that people are encouraged by that story. OK, that's great. I can relate to that as a young scholar trying to talk about the Black Power oh movement my gosh, yes. before, before this moment and talk about Black Power studies and these things. Yes, yes. You know, um, I want to t- for you to talk briefly about 400 Souls, a community mm-hmm. history of African America, 1619 to 2019, that you've edited with um, our mutual friend, Ibram, yeah. Ibram Kendi. You know, what was the 
impetus behind that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm part of that, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah, thank you know, you. Spoiler alert, <laughs> part of it. <laughs> um, but that's going to be a big, big book. And, um, you know, what's the impetus behind that? Yeah, so I think um, it's it's interesting because a lot of people have asked me, you know, off the record, they've said, oh, you know, uh, did you know about the 1619 project, you know, when you were working on this? And the answer is no. In fact, uh, Ibram and I started working on this project several months, actually, several months before the 1619 project uh, came out. So we were just quietly behind the scenes, you know, planning and, and trying to to come up with a way to recognize uh, this important anniversary, right, of 2019 being, you know, 400 years, uh, you know, since the White Lion, you know, arrived um, in in Virginia with, you know, 20 or so, um, you know, Africans, and ultimately, I think uh, we 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 identify, you know, that moment as the symbolic uh, birth date of Black America. And of course, we know that. Uh, that there were black people um, in uh, certainly in um, certainly uh, on well I was about to say the United States but what becomes the United States uh, we know that um, in 1520s uh, for example there were a group of Africans um, in South Carolina and and ultimately had escaped but all of that is to say we wanted to commemorate the 400th anniversary and looking at 1619 uh, to 2019, uh, and just be able to, to put together a rich collection of all black writers who would reflect on this, this history. And uh, it has just been quite simply a wonderful project. I am looking forward to its release uh, in Black History Month uh, next year. And I think uh, people will just be moved by the pieces uh, to see how we've brought together uh, people from a range of backgrounds, so historians and philosophers and um, journalists, just all and poets, just all of these uh, remarkable and talented writers to come together, each grapple with a five-year uh, period of of the history. So I want to reiterate my thanks to you for your contribution in writing a brilliant uh, essay for us on Black Power. And, you know, my final question, Keisha, is really how are you feeling at this moment in terms of the election is, um, uh, as we are speaking, very, very close. It's going to be in less than two weeks. How are you feeling at this mm-hmm. moment um, about where we're at in our history um, and also Black women as shapers and architects of that history? Because your work joins just a long line of sort of brilliant work that we're seeing uh, we've got Martha Jones's Vanguard. Mm-hmm. We have um, all of your books and co-edited books that I'll list off later. But um, how are how are you feeling in that way? Because I think in a lot of ways, seeing the BLM movement and seeing us focus on um, centering the least of these in our community is such sort of the best part of feminism, that idea of collective collaborative where we all win, <laughs> you know? Um, so what, how are you feeling? Well, I'm certainly encouraged. You know, I think um, to be honest, I, I still see the many ways that, you know, that black women are not fully embraced or accepted or respected. I, I think uh, in, in my day-to-day life, I am certainly encountering those experiences where it's it's very clear to me, you know, 
how I'm treated and, and, and how the treatment that I face uh, is different um, than, 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 you know, other people. And, and I understand and, and see on a day-to-day basis uh, the difficulties of, of navigating a life um, with having to shoulder, you know, racism and, and sexism and, and just a long list of um, ways that, that people discriminate against others. But I'm hopeful and I'm encouraged. And I think one of the most exciting aspects of, of being alive in this moment uh, and being, you know, a writer uh, and an educator in this moment is to be part of a large community of um, just remarkable scholars, you know, like yourself, just doing important work that's, you know, I think that's that's the great part, that I'm not doing it alone. I mean, that we're all sort of part of a, a community coming together and trying to use our, you know, our skills and, and our talents to, to really make the world a better place. So I'm, I'm encouraged, you know, I'm encouraged by everything that's happening, uh, even though it, it, there are days where it's, where it's a challenge, but it, I, I just keep pushing forward because I, I know that um, the work is making a difference and I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that the results of the upcoming election will, will be uh, for the better of, um, you know, I just hope, yeah, that whatever happens in two weeks that we can hopefully um, move move out of this current administration. And, and I'm hoping that the future will look a lot better than the present. All right. We're going to end our conversation on that hopeful note. We've been talking with uh, Dr. Keisha and Blaine about uh, Black women, uh, politics, race, democracy, Black women's nationalism, their political radicalism, feminism, uh, both historically and in our contemporary world. Uh, Keisha Blaine is the author of Set the World on Fire, Black Nationalist Women and the Global Struggle for Freedom, which is out in paperback and everyone should get that. I've got my hardback. And the, the co-editor of four different books, The Charleston Syllabus, Readings on Race, Racism, and Racial Violence, uh, New Perspectives on the Black Intellectual Tradition, To Turn the Whole World Over, Black Women and Internationalism. And forthcoming next year is both the co-edited anthology, 400 Souls, A Community History of African America, 1619 to 2019, and until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America, uh, w- which will be published by Beacon Press in 2021. Um, can't wait to read that and to, to write about it <laughs> and to, to uh, talk to you about it as well. So Keisha Blaine, thank Thanks you so for, for joining us here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L. J-O-S-E-P-H and our website csrd.lbj.utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.